morning. Today's passage comes from the book of 2 Samuel, chapter 12, verses 1 through 9. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Morning. I want to begin with a question this morning for us to consider in our passage, and that is, how does God respond when we choose to sin? How does God respond when you know what's right and yet you choose to do the wrong thing anyway? How does God view you? How does he respond? What does he do? Is he angry? Sad? Upset? Or... Does he ignore it and act like it never happened because God forgets our sin, puts it behind him, as the scriptures say, so quickly? How do you view God when you sin? Is he a cosmic policeman who's just watching for you to blow it so he can blow his whistle and catch you in the very act? Or is he a cosmic grandpa (laughs) who just says now now don't worry about it pats you on the head takes you in his arms and slips you a extra piece of candy just because he just wants you to be happy I find that most of us have either a really wrong view of how God responds to our sin or or at least a very inadequate view of how God responds Responds. We tend to be either be overwhelmed with guilt and shame, feel like we need to somehow pay for our sin if we've made a wrong choice and work hard to make it up to God, or we dismiss our sin, taking it lightly, think, hey, you know, God has to forgive, right? He died on the cross, Jesus died, my sin's covered, God has to forgive me, so, you know, it's not that big a deal. I find we tend to go back and forth between one of those, forgetting that sin cost Jesus his very life. 
In 2 Samuel chapter 12, our passage today, which, by the way, is our last in a year's worth of Samuel. We've been through all of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel, and next week we'll be jumping into a whole new series in 1 Corinthians, which I think will be a great study, understanding who we are in Christ as a church. But today's our last passage, 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we'll see how God responds to David's sin, his sin of rape with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, her husband. And as we look at God's response to David, I think we'll get a glimpse into the very heart of God to help us understand more clearly how God views it when we choose sin over him. So pray with me. Lord, as we enter this passage that is most convicting but also enlightening of who you are. May your spirit teach us today more about the reality of what it means to let go of our sin and give it to you and let you truly wash us clean that we might experience real forgiveness and a changed life in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does God respond To our sin. Let me review just a bit. Last week we looked at chapter 11. We saw how David turned his back on God. And he began with laziness, and all the way through, he ended up in rape, adultery, murder, deceit, lying. Because he turned his back on God and became enslaved to sin. At the end of the chapter, it looks like he's pretty much gotten away with it. I mean, hey, Uriah's dead. Hardly anybody knows what David did except Joab and, you know, David, of course, Bathsheba and maybe a few servants, but otherwise he kind of got away with it. Uriah's dead. He takes Bathsheba in as a wife and they have a baby son together. And that's how the chapter ends except for that last phrase. (laughs) What David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord, literally. The thing that David did was evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, sometimes we think we get away with sin. We, we think it doesn't affect anybody else. It doesn't harm anybody else. It's a secret sin. It's just between me and God. But we see from the scripture that sin always harms others. Always. And we never get away with it because God sees. God sees. God was watching. No matter how secret our sin may seem to be. There's a lot of people in the news discovering that. People like Lance Armstrong. Many other sports heroes who we look at and it looks like they got away with it for a while. But like Lance Armstrong, he still denies that he cheated. And yet ten of his teammates claiming he cheated and there's plenty of evidence beyond that that he cheated he hasn't gotten away with it he's had his Tour de France titles stripped from him and on and on we never, never really get away with it Jesus said what's hidden will be shouted from the rooftops folks we just need to remember that I can't hide it 
It's not anonymous. It will be found out. How does God do it with David? Right at the beginning of chapter 12. God sent. Now, if you are here last week, you heard that David, in chapter 11, as he turns his back on God, he begins to usurp God's place. He takes God's place, and eight times it says David sent. David sent for Bathsheba. David sent for Uriah. David sent Uriah back into the field. He sent, he sent, he sent. He, he's taking God's place. He's taking control of the situation because sin is controlling him. But now God intervenes. God exposes sin. That's what the first thing that God does. He exposes our sin. And he does that for David by sending Nathan. <laughs> he sent. God steps in. He intervenes. He moves into our lives. And if we've hung on to sin and we think we've gotten away with it, God intervenes. He, he'll send a person. He'll send the Spirit to prod your heart. He'll send a passage of Scripture. He'll send a message from the pulpit. He'll send a situation. He'll send a consequence into your life. He'll send something to expose your sin. Why does He do that? Because He loves us. He knows how destructive sin is, and as long as we're hanging on to it, He knows it will twist and destroy our lives. So He exposes it. Like a friend of mine whose wife saw something wrong on the credit card statement and began to pursue it and discovered a whole hidden life he was living. Another friend who, as he saw something on his wife's Facebook, some kind of dialogue with another man, an ex-boyfriend, and as he began to pursue it and began to talk to her about it and she denied anything and began to expose what was really going on. And she, too, was living a hidden life. God sends, God intervenes, God does what he needs so that we can face the reality of our sin. He exposes it so it doesn't enslave us and control us any longer. And it's really not that hard, folks, because as you've heard me say before, sin makes you stupid. <laughs> it does. It does, because it enslaves you and it blinds you to reality. Sin is like mud on the windshield. You're trying, still trying to drive and you're still trying to make it, but it's mud that can't be washed off. That's what sin does and it clouds your discernment, it clouds your judgment, and pretty soon you end up in a ditch. No matter how hard you try to maintain things and keep things going, it won't work because sin destroys. So God in His grace exposes Bring somebody, something into your life to begin to expose it. And so God sends Nathan, and Nathan tells this marvelous story to David. It's so insightful. And you may look at this and go, why didn't David get it that this was about him? <laughs> well, a couple reasons, I think. For one, David was acting according to his job. His job as king was to be the judge, to judge situations and so for as far as he can tell Nathan is just coming bringing a story that he is to give a righteous judgment as king about but also David's like most of us men he was good at compartmentalizing <laughs> and we men do that 
We can have a whole area of our lives that we think is secret and we can, and, and we can just act a whole different way over here. We think we can get away with it. David's doing that, I think. So God sends Nathan. Now, Nathan was a trusted friend of David. I love that about God. He sends somebody to confront him that David trusts. Nathan had come to David in chapter 7 and said, Hey, David, if you want to build a temple, go ahead. And then God spoke through Nathan and said, No, wait a minute. God said, Your son will build the temple, but David, you, I will build your house. I will bless you. And so Nathan brought this incredible message of grace and encouragement to David back in chapter 7. So David trusted Nathan. Nathan comes and tells this story about these two men who live in this same town and one is poor. And boy, Nathan is a master here in just describing how this poor man has nothing at all except this one little lamb that's like a child to him, like a daughter, he says. The lamb eats from his food at his table and sits with his children and he holds him in his bosom and he's a delight to him. And the rich man who has many lambs takes that one and kills it when a visitor comes to feed this visitor. And David hears this and he's the judge. He knows what's right and wrong. And David is angry, it says. And David says, that man deserves to die. But David knows the law, the true law. And the law, according to Exodus 22, verse 1, is that when, if someone takes someone else's lamb, then they have to give restitution fourfold. Four lambs for the one that was taken. So David gives judgment. He says he deserves to die, really, but here's my judgment, Nathan, because I know what's right. I know the law. He should return fourfold. So he calls for the law to be upheld. What a powerful moment. As Nathan now looks at David, says two words in the Hebrew. Atah ha'ish. You are the man. You are the man. You are the man who deserves death. David, the very man you condemned, it's you. The very man who's under the condemnation of the law, David, it is you. This has to be some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. But Nathan doesn't stop there. God continues to speak to David through Nathan. And he goes on to describe what David has really done. He goes on to describe how God has blessed David in so many ways. He says, I anointed you, I delivered you from Saul, and I gave, and I gave, and I gave, and I would have loved to give you far more. But you despised the word of the Lord, and you despised me, he says. Verse 9 and verse 10. Now think about this for a minute. What is Nathan saying that David did wrong? I mean, he did specific things, and he mentions those, taking Bathsheba, killing Uriah. But if you think about what he's describing here, he says, this really, David, is the essence of your sin. You've violated my relationship with you. You've despised what I've asked of you. You've despised me. 
You see, that's really important for us to see is that all sin is, is not so much breaking a rule, that's part of it, but all sin is essentially a violation of a covenant relationship with God. God has given us his son. He's died for us. He's forgiven us. We are not our own. We've been bought with a price. We are now his. And when we say, God, I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want to do. It's a violation of our relationship with him. It's relational. All sin is relational. And there's a key word that he uses twice here. Despise. You have despised the word of the Lord. You have despised me, God says. That word despise means to take lightly, to treat as worthless, to act like it doesn't matter at all to you, to give no weight to. That's what that word despised means. Let me give you an example of it. If a person came to you, say you've been married 40 years, and a young person came to you who had never been married didn't know much about it, and they came and confronted you and gave you lots of advice about your marriage. Would you weigh heavily what they have to say? Probably not. You'd probably despise it, if you want to use this word. You'd take it lightly. You, you don't really know, you know. Who are you to give me that kind of advice? But what Nathan is saying is that's exactly what we do to God. When we act like, God, I know what your word says. I know what you say is best for me, but I know better than you. I know what I need to be happy. (laughs) I know what I need right now because I'm tired. I don't feel good. And so I will choose sin over you. That is despising the word of the Lord. That's despising the Lord. The one who died for us, who gave us a covenant relationship with him. Sin is always relational. It's always rejecting him. It's despising him even more than the rules. So we ignore God's word and his heart when we despise him and say, God, you don't really understand. I know better than you. And Nathan goes on, and I love the way he does it here because Nathan goes on as he confronts him and he takes away... Any excuses, the normal excuses that we would use to explain away our sin. I really like the way he does it here, and I, Steve Zeisler is the one I got some of these thoughts from. I really appreciate how he put it. Three of the main excuses that we use for our sin. Number one, I've been deprived. You know, I, I was raised in a dysfunctional home. It wasn't a Christian home, and I just, I, uh, there's... A lot of reasons why it's much harder for me. And because I've been deprived and I didn't get as good a teaching and this happened to me and that happened to me, I'm a victim, I've been abused, etc. Therefore, God, I've been deprived and that's why I sin. And Nathan answers that excuse for David by saying, No, God says, I anointed you, I delivered you, I gave, I gave, I gave, I gave, and I would have given you far more. David, you have everything you need to be the man that I'm calling you to be. God says the same to you and me. I've given you everything you need to be the person, man or woman, I've called you to be. The second excuse we tend to use for our sin is 
I didn't mean to. I, I, I didn't mean to. I, I don't know what came over me. I, I, I really didn't mean to do it. It was circumstances. I must have been tired, whatever. You know, there's got to be an excuse. And what God says to David is, no, you chose to do this. You despised me. You did it. You are responsible. You meant to. You chose. And he says that to us too. You chose. If you choose sin, you chose. You're responsible. And the final excuse we make, these are all interrelated, but the final one is, it's not my fault. It's not really my fault. There's some way that we can explain it. I mean, you know, yeah, I know I slept with Bathsheba, but... She shouldn't have been bathing where I could see her. It's her fault. And I didn't kill Uriah. The Ammonites did. How does God answer that? You took Uriah's wife. You killed Uriah by the hand of the Ammonites, he says in verse 10, verse 9 by the sword of the sons of Ammon. In other words, we're responsible. You see, when we sin, God is always working to expose it, to get it out in the open, because as long as we keep it hidden and hang on to it, it will destroy our lives. And so God loves loves us enough to expose it and to take away our, our excuses. God knows the only way to get rid of sin in our lives is to expose it. And what does God do next? He forgives it. He is forgiving. He loves us and he wants to get rid of the sin and he forgives our sin. Notice David's response in verse 13 after being confronted. Wonderful response. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan confronted David with two words first. You are the man, two words in Hebrew. David responds with two words in the Hebrew, five in English, but two words in the Hebrew. I have sinned against the Lord. Hatati lahwe. Hatati lahwe. I have sinned against the Lord. Period. (laughs) I love that period. Note the period. He just says, I've sinned against the Lord. Period. No excuses, no explanations, no demands, no requests, nothing. I've sinned. That is what God is looking for, just a simple confession. Yes, I did it. And then notice he says, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, didn't David sin against Bathsheba, against Uriah? against the whole nation as the king who's supposed to be righteous, against many others, yes. But David understands an incredible theological truth here, and that is that all our sin is essentially and foremost at foundation, a rebellion against God, a violation of our covenant with God, and it's a sin against him. Yes, it affects other people, but it at core is our sin against him. Remember what he says in Psalm 51, which is, an incredible psalm written as David's ongoing confession of this whole event after he was confronted by Nathan. And in verse 4 of Psalm 51, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned 
so that you are righteous when you judge me. Psalm 51. Just a note about Psalm 51. We see David confessing here to Nathan, right? It's private. But then David writes Psalm 51 because he makes his public confession to the whole nation. (laughs) Sometimes we need to confess publicly. Sometimes we need to tell at least a few others what our sin has been and what God has exposed so that they can hold us accountable. And David writes the psalm for the whole nation so that they can know he sinned and they can also learn from his struggle with it. Now, David's response here is really interesting. Again, I've sinned against the Lord. Very different and a great contrast from how Saul responded, if you recall, back in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, when Samuel confronted the king there, King Saul. Saul was sent. He was supposed to kill all the Amalekites, kill all the livestock, kill everything, because the Amalekites were horrible enemies, destructive enemies of God's people. And when Samuel confronts him, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. This is for Samuel 15, verse 13. But Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Saul said, They've brought them, the people, from the Amalekites. For the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed... A little later, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission which the Lord sent me. And I brought back Agag the king, which he wasn't supposed to do, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, Finally, listen to what Saul says, I've sinned. He finally admits it. After all his excuses, blaming the people, you know, all kinds of rationalizations, he says in verse 24, I have sinned, but there's no period. (laughs) I've sinned. I have indeed transgressed the, the command of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Explaining it away. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. He puts conditions on his repentance, his confession. And you need to come and you need to make sure I get forgiven. And, and it was really the people and I feared them. And it was, you know, I have this weakness. And notice the contrast with David. You see, what God wants from us is simply to just say, you're right. That's confession. I sinned. No excuses. No conditions. No bargaining chips. And how does God respond to that kind of response? The rest of verse 13. I've sinned against the Lord, David said. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. That's the word for forgiveness. The Lord's forgiven your sin and you shall not die. Amazing response because according to the law, and David knew the law, for adultery and murder and all that he'd done, he deserved death. According to the law, that was what was right. But God, through Nathan, says, 
David, because you've confessed your sin, you've admitted it, you've let me expose it. I totally forgive you. I've taken your sin away. There is no barrier between you and me now. None. That's a miracle of forgiveness, folks, that we rebel against God, but if we just admit it, he totally forgives. And he says, and I will take away the ultimate consequence, which is death. You deserve to die, David. (laughs) You just said it. But you will not die. Amazing grace, amazing forgiveness from the Lord. He's free to approach God with no restrictions as we are. God's not an angry policeman. He's a God who longs to forgive if we will just let go of our sin, if we'll just admit it. He'll forgive us immediately through the cross of Jesus Christ. He removes barriers to life with him. And all he asks of us is to admit our sin with no excuses. Just admit it. And, as David did, realize that our sin, the penalty of sin, any sin, is death. Jesus had to die for you and me, for our sin. Maybe we didn't commit adultery or murder, but it's very clear in the scriptures that the penalty for all sin, turning our back on God, going our way, is death. And yet Jesus bore our death, died for us, substituted himself for us on the cross. And God wants us to know that we deserve death. That our sin is that awful. So anything then becomes a gift of grace. I deserve death, but wow, you've given me life. Everything's a gift. And that leads to gratitude. And folks, the key to knowing if you've really faced your sin and really realized how you deserve death is gratitude. Do you live a life of gratitude for everything? For every breath that's a gift. For every little good thing. For every friendship. For every beautiful sunset. For everything that comes your way that has goodness in it. It's a gift that you do not deserve. If you're learning to live life with gratitude like that, then it means you're beginning to understand the depth of sin and how awful it is and the incredible nature of God's forgiveness because you don't deserve his gifts. We deserve to be on that cross. Brennan Manning, in his wonderful little book, Ruthless Trust, says this, Here we may find the explanation for why the great saints spoke frequently about their sinfulness, motivated not by masochism or false modesty or low self-esteem, but by gratitude. They grew into an ever-deepening awareness that everything about them, their passion for Christ, their heroic life of prayer, and their unstinting generosity in ministry were all unmerited gifts from him. Anything we do that's good, Anything we receive that's good is a gift from him. And so what characterizes the life of a Christian who is beginning to face the reality of who we are in Christ? Gratitude. Gratitude for everything. We have the cross, folks, as proof that all sin leads to death. All sin. But the cross is also proof that God has provided forgiveness for us. 
and died in our place. And we can receive that freely if we'll just say, Hatati Ladanai, Hatati Lawe, I've sinned against the Lord. So God exposes sin, God forgives sin. Third, God allows consequences. Now, David didn't have to die. But David did have to face consequences because sin always has consequences. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death. Sin always pays its wages. So God allows consequences in our lives. And in verse 10 and following, there's a whole litany of consequences in David's life because of his sin. Listen to them. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. David would have violence in his house for the rest of his life. Because you've despised me. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you from your own household. I'll even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Verse 14, Because by this deed you've given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. All this came true. David's oldest son raped his half-sister. The rest of 2 Samuel really describes the consequences that David experienced in his life. Amnon raped his sister Tamar. Tamar's brother, Absalom, murdered Amnon for it. Then the next two sons, Absalom and Adonijah, I think. Anyway, the next two sons of David rebelled against David, end up being killed in battle. They tried to kill David. This child that was born to Bathsheba and David died on the seventh day. David experienced some really difficult consequences for his sin. Does that seem harsh to you? It's a lot to deal with for the rest of his life. It's only harsh depending on your perspective. If your perspective is, I deserve life to go well. You know, God forgave me and so he should make my life easy now then we're going to be resentful and we're going to be upset if there's consequences and we will be angry. But if we really believe that I deserve death and anything that's good is a gift from God, then we'll see consequences not as something to be angry and frustrated about, but we'll see consequences as something that God can use to draw us closer to himself. And that's what God does. He allows consequences in our lives from sin so that we will be drawn to him more and more and never give ourselves to sin in the same way again. That's part of his love to us. That's why he allows consequences. He forgives us and he keeps us from the worst consequences and then he handles and controls consequences to drive us closer to him. David, because he went through what he did, wrote many of his psalms in the later years of his life as he went through those difficult times. And we have those psalms today to encourage us. They became the very word of God himself. God protects us from what we really deserve, which is death. 
and gives us life and works with us to draw us closer and closer to him. There's a man, a friend of mine, who many years ago was arrested for child pornography. He carries the results of that sin every day because he has to register as a sex offender. He has to deal with that for the rest of his life. But let me tell you, this man, because he's turned to the Lord with those consequences and he's submitted to what the Lord is doing in his life and let it drive him to a deeper relationship with God, that has made his life incredibly attractive and a powerful testimony of God's forgiveness and God's grace. Whatever consequences you face, they can be used of God to drive you to a deeper dependence on him and to become a wonderful testimony of his grace. So God allows consequences for a deeper purpose. And then finally, God surprises us with his grace. The end of uh, this section, verse 24 and 25, David comforted his wife Bathsheba, went into her and lay with her, and she gave birth to a son, and he, he named him Solomon, which means peace, wholeness, completeness. David has experienced now forgiveness in a way that he says, wow, a new son. I've experienced wholeness, peace with God, completeness. Now the Lord loved him and sent word through Nathan the prophet that he, God, named him Jedidiah for the Lord's sake. God sent the message to David, yes, David, you have peace with me, but even more than that, I'm naming this son Jedediah, which means beloved of God. What a beautiful picture of grace that God meets us where we are, not just with his forgiveness, but with ongoing grace. He restored what had been taken away, gives him a new son to raise, and this son will be the chosen one who will build a temple, who will be the heir to the throne and the heir to the very Messiah himself. David didn't deserve that kind of goodness, but God gives it. That's our God. He's amazing. He loves us enough because he knows how horribly destructive sin is to expose our sin, to forgive our sin, to allow us to have consequences so that we'll continually depend on him more and more in our lives. And then he shows us surprising grace all along the way. So the encouragement to us is God knows how sin destroys and separates so he does all he can to draw us back to him. So don't hold on to your sin. Let it go. Let God expose it so that you can really experience his forgiveness. No excuses. I sinned, period. So that you can experience his love, forgiveness, and grace to the fullest extent. There's a wonderful passage at the end of Psalm 51, and I want to close with this. Psalm 51, again, it's an incredible psalm. I encourage you to read it after today because it's his psalm of confession and repentance, David's. But verse 15, Psalm 51 says, O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. 
Heard that word before? Despise? David despised God and his word. But David's learned something really powerful here. David says, if I just admit it, if I just come to you in my brokenness, in my failings, in my sin, that you will never despise. You don't take that lightly, God. You honor it when I come and you extend forgiveness and grace to the fullest extent. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. Let's pray. What amazing and good words those are, Lord, that you do not take lightly when we come to you and admit our sin freely, confess it, come in our brokenness, and let you begin to heal. Lord, may we be people who let you expose our sin, who let it go, so that we can experience the joy of forgiveness and grace through Jesus who died for us, who took the penalty for sin on, on himself, that we might experience forgiveness in you. We thank you for sending Jesus as our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.